0: If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. First we will read God's holy word and then we will ask for God's help as we seek to understand it and to believe it. So let's look now to God's word. We'll read the whole of Exodus chapter 3. We'll be considering part of it this morning and again returning to it again this evening to consider even further from it. Exodus chapter 3, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's pray, friends. O Lord, we come to you and bow down and pray for grace now as your word, having been read, is yet spread open before us, and as we study it together for a few moments this day, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church by it. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're not that far removed from the holidays, and every year at Christmas time, we are inundated with advertisements for product after product after product, each of which is guaranteed to absolutely change our life. And every year I'm amazed at how easily the American public is bamboozled into believing it. We've been 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years on this earth without this product, without this service. And suddenly now we need it and we cannot do without it. And it will fundamentally revolutionize your life as you know it. You've heard all the the claims. Paleo dieting will change your life. CrossFit will change your life. The iPhone 14 will change your life. This year's newest edition of the Keurig Coffee Brewer will change your life. For my part, I had no idea that shifting away from my auto-drip coffee pot to this one-cup AeroPress brewing system would upend history, end world hunger, save the wetlands, and revolutionize civilizations, but apparently it can do even that. No, every year by January 2nd, we realize that despite the promises of these gadgets, our lives plod on pretty much the same and rather unaffected and transformed, despite the promises of these newest toys. The reality is that epic making change doesn't happen that often. Paradigm shifting and history changing these things often are not. And so we are accustomed to the same old, same old. You promise a revolution, you promise a paradigm shift, I find myself incredibly underwhelmed. Well, not so when we come to Exodus chapter 3. Because when we come to Exodus 3, we really are coming to a bona fide turning point. A turning point that is monumental for all of world history as well as redemptive history and the destiny of the people of God. Unlike the newest iPhone, what happens in Exodus chapter 3 really does shape and affect the course of eternal history. Let's look at the first six verses first. Of course, this is a turning point not only for redemptive history, but for Moses' own personal life as well. You remember, we've been thinking about his, the, the course of his life thus far in the last couple of chapters. Born as he was, a Hebrew slave child, saved from disaster by Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt. And eventually he, Moses, adopted into her household, raised himself to be a prince of Egypt. But then as he intervened in that dispute between an Egyptian taskmaster and a Hebrew slave who was seeking Uh, Rather, in intervening in that situation, Moses killed the Egyptian. Moses then flees into the desert, and he lives the next 40 years of his life among the Midianite people as a shepherd. Moses' life has been one of upending turmoil. But this time, when we come to Exodus chapter 3, it's quite different. You see, up till now, Moses has been, by the providence of God, tossed back and forth, raised as a Hebrew child under a condemn, born under a condemnation of death, yet then later on raised in the imperial palace of all Egypt, now on the run for his life 40 years now in the people of Midian, tossed back and forth. Here, though, in Exodus 3, God himself directly intervenes, and it is an encounter that changes Moses forever. Not so much because of his experience of an extraordinary event, such as this burning yet unconsumed bush, but rather he is changed by the one who meets him there. Not merely by the experience, but the one who meets him there. One commentator put it like this. When people meet God in glory and in grace, they cannot, they do not, ever remain unchanged. Real change, the great paradigm shift, the revolution that we really need, comes in relation to the God of infinite glory and majesty and grace. Close quote. The poor Moses He's been rejected by the Hebrews, he's wanted for murder by the Egyptians, and now he's out in the middle of nowhere working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. I like how the King James Version puts it, that Moses is out in the backside of the desert. He's gone from being a prince of Egypt to the backside of the wilderness, the backside of the desert, out in the sticks, no man's land. Pastor The late Jim Boyce points out that we can probably make an educated guess as to the kind of humiliation Moses is feeling. If you remember back in Genesis, Genesis 36, verse 34, Joseph, at that point, said every shepherd is an abomination to an Egyptian. That's who Moses has become now, an abomination according to the culture in which he was raised and a failure according to the Hebrew culture into which he was born on account of his being a wanted man. Well, one day Moses is out tending his father-in-law's flocks and he comes close to Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, which is why the Lord tells Moses, this will be the sign for you. You shall turn, return to this very mountain and worship God here on this mountain. He's out there at Mount Horeb and he sees a most bizarre sight, a bush on fire that doesn't stop burning. The flames keep blazing, and yet the bush is unconsumed by the flames. So naturally, he goes closer to take a a closer look. Verse 2, and as he gets close, his life is utterly turned upside down. The angel of the Lord, which our passage tells us is God himself in verse 4, speaks to Moses from the flames. Exodus 3 is one of those pivotal keystone texts of Scripture, and in it we learn a great deal about the one true God, the great I Am. And there's so much in this text that we simply cannot cover it in one brief sermon. So as I alluded to earlier, we'll take a look at it in two treatments this morning, and then we'll take a further look again tonight. We're going to consider what we learn about the character and the will and the plan and the nature of this one who is the great I Am, the Lord God, and what that means for his people and what that means for the world This passage breaks down into two major sections, although there's any number of legitimate ways to outline it. But for our purposes, we think about it as, under these terms, the divinely given mission to Moses, and then the divinely revealed name, I am who I am. Both of those themes, if you like, give us insight into the nature and the character of God. So that's how we'll look at it this morning. What we learn about the great I am from this divinely disclosed mission that he gives to Moses. And then tonight we'll come back and we'll look at the burning bush, what we learn about the great I Am from his divinely disclosed name. One of the things that the Lord has been teaching Moses over the last 40 years by way of his providence is that Moses must depend not simply on his natural and native gifts. Remember, he's raised in Egypt's royal household the great imperial power of the world as it was at that point in history. And so as a a grandson, effectively an adopted grandson of Pharaoh, Moses would have had every kind of skill set receiving the royal education that he did. Something like an Oxford and a Cambridge and a Juilliard and a Johns Hopkins medical school education all rolled into one. This is a highly educated, expertly trained, and incredibly skilled man And so it's no small irony when he says to the Lord God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, the man that I knew as my effective adopted grandfather all those years. And yet God is bringing Moses to an end of himself, so to speak, driving Moses as he does into this obscure little corner, this corner village near Sinai, out in the desert. No need for royal education or royal power or clever rhetoric or literary skills here, yes? Jethro, his father-in-law, all right, son, grab a stick and watch the sheep. That's what you're up to. You, Moses, will learn to depend on me, says the Lord. And so now, though thoroughly humbled, the Lord appears to inform Moses of a truth that maybe, maybe he could not have swallowed so readily just a few years ago. The Lord informs Moses that actually he needs more. He needs the presence, and he needs the knowledge of the God who sends him. And so, not only is Moses given a great commission, but he's also given great provision, as we'll see here in our text. What a remarkable thing that was that the Lord was up to all those years ago. Who who would have thought, who would have imagined that Moses being driven into obscurity, fleeing from the law, on the run, on the lamb, would be precisely what the Lord would use to bring Moses to a place so that he could teach him a hard to swallow truth? What a remarkable, what a remarkable plan. God has been working out. His providence to Moses and his providence toward all of us is marvelous. And so this morning we're thinking about this divinely ordained commission given to Moses, and we'll think about it in two parts. Verses 1 through 6 was really sort of the lead up and setting the context, but then as we think about the commission, the divine commission more specifically, verses 7 through 10, we see a mission. A mission. And then verses 15 to 22, a message. A mission to do. That's what Moses is given by God. A mission to do and a message to give. A message to proclaim. So let's think about it along those two lines this morning. So first of all, Moses is given a mission. God has a job for him. Verses 7 to 9, God has already identified himself to Moses in verse 6 as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And now he tells him that in full compliance... With his covenant promises to the fathers, he is now going to bring the children of Israel out of bondage at last into the land of Canaan. It's a land of plenty. You see that described there in verse 8? And it's a land occupied by other nations and tribal groups. Verse 9, or rather there at the end of verse 8. And yet it is a land that he swears to give them nevertheless. This was the promise given to the patriarchs long ago. It's the promise that God now renews with Moses. This is the good news in Old Testament form. The announcement to Moses that God is going to save and rescue and deliver his languishing enslaved people, that he's going to keep his covenant, and he's going to bring them into the land of promise. Here is the good news of God's promised salvation reaffirmed. And let us carefully notice what this mission teaches us about the heart of our covenant God. What motivates? What motivates God to keep his covenant promises and save his people? Why, according to our text, does God resolve the way he does to save Israel and to deliver them? Or why, for that matter, does God ever resolve to save such wretched sinners like me and you? Let's look at the text. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it simply that he saves Israel? because his heart is moved with compassion and pity for his chosen people who are in suffering and bondage and pain? Look at verses 7 and 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. That word, I know, it means more than that he has bare Raw information of fact—it's more than mere data that God has about them. It means rather that He comprehends the depths of the reality of their predicament and of their situation. It, it's the—it's the "I know" of covenant intimacy. It's the same word used all over the Old Testament to refer to the covenant bonds between the Lord and His people. It's—it's it's that word of Genesis, a concept that's reflected in the intimacy of the very first marriage in Eden. God knows, in the fullest sense of the term, the sufferings of his people. Verse 9, The cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. God cares for his people. He's moved with compassion for them. Now, maybe that sounds pedantic to you, but how easily, how easily we forget this wondrous truth. Israel may well have forgotten it after all these years of slavery. (laughs) Approaching four centuries, 400 years of slavery, is God really remembering us? After four decades, 40 years in exile, after he's on the run as a wanted man, laboring out in the Sinai desert, Moses may well have forgotten it too. But God has not forgotten his promises, and neither is he indifferent to his people's cries. He acts for his people, we're told, because... He loves his people. The salvation by God that he is keen to wreak is not some unfeeling, cold, aloof, merely logical action performed by some stoic, austere, far-off deity. It is a holy and sovereign fiat from the inscrutable mind and divine wisdom of Almighty God. Yes, it is, to be sure, but it is an action that is marvelously personal And wrought with divine love. The God of sovereign power has mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And he has saved you because he loves you, child of God. He hears your cries and he is moved with compassion for you. Do you know that? Do you believe that? He hears your cries and is moved with compassion for you. It was love for Israel, his own people, that moved the heart of God to deliver them. And it is love for you, his church, his bride, his elect, that moves his heart still. Child of God, you are beloved. You are beloved. I love what one commentator says here. Nowhere is that more clearly demonstrated, of course, than in the life of Jesus Christ. It was love, after all, in the heart of God that sent him. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, verse 8. Or Mark 1, verse 41, when a leper came to Jesus calling out, if you will, you can make me clean. Mark says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. The compassionate heart of God that met Moses here in Exodus 3 is most fully displayed, meets us in Jesus Christ, who hears when you cry and responds and is moved with pity for his people. He is, Hebrews 4.15, touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He sees and he hears and he knows and he has come down to deliver his people. When people cry out to Jesus Christ, he hears them and he saves them. Close quote. Sometimes in our way of thinking on these things, as we understand the doctrine of God, as we understand his attributes, sometimes the, the aseity of God is, is held up against the compassion of God, or the fact that God is, is without body, parts, or passions, that God is impassable. That is not at all at odds, as we see here from this text, with the doctrine that God has compassion for his beloved church, for his beloved people. Sometimes we humans want to reduce God down to a a kind of talisman, don't we? Or reduce prayer to a a formulaic incantation when it comes to this idea. As, As if simply saying the right words invokes some kind of magical power and forces God's hand and makes it work. Our pastor back in Jackson years ago once told the story of a street evangelist who would hand people a tract as he was witnessing to people on the streets. He'd hand them this tract and he would... On this tract was the so-called sinner's prayer. And he'd say, read that out loud for me, read it out loud for me. And as soon as the person finished reading it out loud, the evangelist would say, amen. And he would immediately exclaim, aha, you've been saved, you've been converted, isn't it wonderful? The words that we speak are not magical incantations, which if you'll just say them enough, they will leverage from the hands of a reluctant God the blessing that you're seeking, no, no, But if from the heart, a heart of faith, you will cry out for mercy to Jesus Christ, child of God, he will always, always, always hear you. After all, it was God himself who stirred the prompting in your heart that would incline you to call out to Christ Jesus in the first place. If I could borrow another pastor's thoughts, no one ever went to Jesus seeking mercy and left empty-handed. He is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He knows. God loves you, Christian. Isn't that good news? Have you forgotten? How easily we do forget it. Take it in again. You are beloved of God. He has proven it in the gift of his son. He hears you and he will answer when you cry to him. Close quote. That's good news. Surely Moses found it comforting. And at the same time, we can imagine Moses standing there thinking, well, (laughs) what does this have to do with me exactly? It's jolly good that you are the God who hears the cries of his people. But you know, the Hebrews don't exactly want me, and the Egyptians are trying to kill me. Suddenly things get real. Verse 10, come, God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Isn't that so often how it is with the Lord? that those who have been humbled and brought low, those of us who are all too aware of our deficiencies and inadequacies, it's precisely those whom God is delighted to use. And so Moses begins there at verse 11, and again at verse 13 he starts to to sputter and stammer and, and offer excuse after excuse. Well, the knowledge of God's love is wonderful, isn't it? But the call of God, oh, well, that's another story entirely, let's not get too personal here. The Apostle Paul puts it wonderfully in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, doesn't he? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. God confronts Moses, and he calls Moses. Moses isn't terribly interested. Tried it, Lord, tried to help out the Hebrews before, didn't work out. Thanks very much, but no thanks. God has not abandoned his purposes for Moses. He has plans and he calls Moses to service. It's wonderful to be reminded of the love of God as Moses was. His, his compassion, his pity, his heart bursting with mercy towards his people, his understanding. We are comforted by it and we should be comforted by it. But when we realize that God's love and compassion has a goal beyond that of merely of ourselves and it is interested in something beyond merely our comforts and assurances when we realize that the king's love would ultimately drive us into the king's service that's where we start to hit a snag but this is always the way it is with the god who reveals himself in mercy it's always the pattern of scripture he calls us to service to himself It's the pattern of Exodus chapter three. It's also the pattern of Matthew chapter 28. Like Moses at this mountain, Jesus' disciples later on gather round another mountain and there they too saw the glory of God shining not this time from a burning bush, but shining now from the face of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And like Moses confronted with the glory of God, they are confronted with the glory of the risen Christ and they are also overawed and so they worship. This self-same Lord comes again to his people, but this time not as an angel from the flame, but rather in perfect union with human flesh, still bearing the nail marks in his hands, the evidences of love as he confronts them there that day with what we call the Great Commission. One commentator, I think it was Ralph Davis, put it like this. A large part of the glory that moved them and humbled them and made them worship was the knowledge of, That the one who stands before them resplendent in authority and majesty is the one into whose flesh the nails were driven for them and for their deliverance. That this one has acted to save and rescue them. And there on this mountain, just like at Horeb, there is a fresh revelation of the name of God. Not now I am that I am, that name, but this time Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's name is displayed in its fullness in Christ his glory revealed. His purposes and salvation displayed. Here is God, the Redeemer, standing before them. And just like Moses, having seen all of this and heard all of this, Jesus sends his disciples on mission. Go, therefore, make disciples. Close quote. Too often we want the mercy but not the mission, don't we? We want to be saved, but... Being sent or recruited for service, meh. But Moses needed to learn, and we must too, that salvation never terminates on us. Grace never finishes its work in our hearts alone. The saved are always sent. That doesn't mean you'll have quite as epic of a story as Moses leading people out of an imperial slave bondage. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go around the world on the mission field. But whether that is to the far-off mission fields of Southeast Asia, or whether that's discipling your children, serving in your local church in countless ways, investing yourself in the ministry of the word and prayer and mercy and sacrificial giving in order to edify and build up the body of Christ as iron sharpens iron, all of God's people are sent on mission or, or in service, if you like, in one form or another. The grace of God overflowing in our hearts results in an outward and others' focus. It never merely terminates on us and our own renewal. If God has made you his child, he does so to make you his instrument. If God has made you his child, he does so to make you his instrument. So Moses is sent. He's given a mission. And so are we. So that's the first thing that we see is a mission. But then secondly and briefly, look with me at verses 15 to 22. A message. A message. If you compare the words of 15 to 17, what Moses is supposed to say to Israel, with the words that God initially said to Moses in verses 7, 8, and 9, you'll see that the good news of God to Moses is the same message which he will then bring to Israel. What God says to Moses, Moses says to Israel. When it comes to Pharaoh, however, verses 18 to 22, message is a little different. God will deal with Pharaoh in stages... So that at first, you'll notice there the request is simply, please, just give us a three-day hiatus into the desert to worship God. Pharaoh, verse 19, will resist. Thus, God will display his majesty and power, his mighty arm, in bringing Israel out of bondage. And when they finally do leave Egypt, they will do so now not as vagrants and slaves, but they will do so with favor. In fact, they'll do so with riches. You notice that in verse 22, plundering the Egyptians, something which was hinted at back in Exodus 1 and 2, when Moses' own mother was paid to nurse her own son. In other words, what is a glorious message of deliverance for the people of Israel is at the same time a frightening warning of judgment for Egypt. And the gospel message, the the message of God for the world, entrusted to the church as we are sent on mission, always bears that double-edged character, The good news of God is always a double-edged sword, is it not? A message of mercy to all those who would believe in Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He is a perfect savior to all who call upon him by faith. Yet there's also a warning. Reject the claims of Christ Jesus and you will stand before his judgment seat to face the royal and cosmic wrath of Jesus Christ. That's always the pattern of scripture. Uh, there's many, 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 many unifying themes across the Bible, but one of my favorite, one of my favorite unifying themes that we see unfolded across Scripture's pages might be this. God's glory displayed in salvation through judgment. God's glory displayed in salvation through judgment. And, and there's a part of me that's inclined to think we should always use that, that hyphenated phrase, salvation through judgment. Because that's the thing you see all over the Scriptures, do we not? Noah and his family, salvation The world? Judged and slain. Israel? Salvation out of Egypt. Egypt? Judged and slain. Pharaoh's armies. You and me and all the ransomed church of God? Salvation. And what fell upon Christ? Judgment, condemnation, slaughter, and death. The good news of God's salvation is always a twin edged sword. And the message that the church carries to the world is one of greatest urgency. If one will not be rescued by Christ from the cross, he will be judged by Christ from his throne. You will either be plucked from the wrath of God by the grace of Christ, or you will be left to face his judgments having rejected Christ. Either evaluated under the piercing gaze of God's holiness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, or evaluated under the piercing gaze of his holiness, clothed in your own sinful filth. Beloved friends, brothers and sisters, do you sense the urgency that presses upon us as the church to be faithful witnesses? These are the destinies of all people, facing all people everywhere. Like Moses of old, God's people are redeemed by his grace. We are overwhelmed by his steadfast love. We are comforted by his compassion. And then we are sent out again in a variety of ways, in a variety of unique and particular applications, sent out again in service to our Redeemer King for the proclamation of his message, and for the glory of his majesty. Moses has a mission, and he's got a message. The church has a mission, and we've got a message. It's a story to take to the nations. It's the greatest news in all the world. May the Lord bless to us the ministry of his word and seal it to our hearts today. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that you are a God of overwhelming grace who hears the cries of his people, We thank you that you are a God who would not leave us to our own selfish tendencies but that you would indeed have us turn our attention and turn our energy and our enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus toward others. So write your truth upon our hearts. Thank you for calling and redeeming and sending your people, sending your church. Grant us willing hearts and also obedient hands and feet so that the brilliance and the grace of Christ Jesus might be known world over. Amen.